This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elova. Hi, good afternoon to you. Wonderful to be back with you. Here it is, Wednesday afternoon. It's just gone 10 past 2 and great to be with you here on our segment of Judaism 101.9, of course, where we explain some things in simple terms, um, not necessarily to those who have uh, don't have the depth of knowledge, but uh, perhaps to add a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of understanding to each and every one of us and to make things um, a little bit easier for us to grasp and to understand. So going through various dimensions of Judaism, but um, very often we just simply talk about the date or upcoming events, things that are going to be happening, explaining the various Yamim Tovim, the various great days, the various days that are marked by Jews for all sorts of purposes. And of course, today, I'd like to spend some time discussing this day, the day, today, the 20th of Sivan. The 20th of Sivan is a date that unfortunately has gone down in a later Jewish um, a tradition and history as a very, very difficult, harsh, and um, unfortunately <laughs> very unpleasant connotation of this day, the 20th of Sivan. Chav Sivan, that is today. And we're going to be spending some time hopefully unpacking, exploring, looking at some of the things that have been written about this day um, over the last century or so. So if we go back to um, the year 1171, 1171, uh, remember that now, of course, we're in 2017. So we go back over those 800 um, and then some years. You find that this date became written down as the day on which the famous martyrdom of the Jews of a city, a town called Blois. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It is spelt B-L-O-I-S, Blois, in France. Um, There was a a terrible, terrible story that happened there on this day, on the 20th of Sivan, and it is actually recorded by several different uh, rabbinic writers who recorded this as something tragic and terrible that occurred. Well, let's just explore what is Blois and where is it? Well, it's a city in France, as we said. It is on the uh, the river Loire. I think it's pronounced L-O-I-R-E. It's not far from a town called Orleans or Orleans. And (coughs) it's a pretty small city, um, a population probably between 25 and 30,000 people only. Um, If you see pictures of it, if you Google it and you check on the Internet, very, very pretty, uh, beautiful place um, on this river. It looks pristine. It looks magnificent. Of course, as with all of those towns there, dominated um, on its skyline by a big church, um, by a big symbol of Christianity. And of course, it's around that that um, this story unfolds and transpires. It happens to be um, the uh, distinction that it has had over the last um, a number of centuries has been that no Jews have lived there. Um, in fact, if we go throughout all of Europe, um, you'll find Jews dotted around almost everywhere, but um, recorded as having no Jews living there for the past 800 years is the city of Blois. Um, and it was not because the Jews 
were told that they couldn't live there, but Jews simply shunned that place um, where the Jewish community was destroyed as a result of a false ritual murder accusation in the year 1171. Now, we all know that there have been many false accusations made by the enemies of Jews as an excuse for killing or robbing them over many, many centuries. Um, It has been and has played an integral part of worldwide anti-Semitism from uh, way back when. Um, But none, in fact, was more wicked than the accusation uh, that Jews required Christian blood for the Pesach Matzah or for other bizarre fictitious fictitious rituals, Um, and of course those became known as blood libels. Well, the first such accusation, in fact, of a blood libel was made in Norwich in England in 1144, and it was then repeated several times in other British cities um, in later years. It's amazing that such a thing should have started in uh, Britain of all places, Um, and from there it spread to continental Europe, where blood libels became quite common, but there was a blood libel in Blois that was the first of many to follow from time to time, and um, right down to the latest times, uh, the Bayless case in 1911, in practically all Christian-dominated countries. Now, this vicious slander cost the lives of hundreds and perhaps even thousands of innocent Jews, of men, of women, and of children, but the hatred that it bred in and amongst um, mainline Christian communities all over the world towards the Jews was one of the main causes of uh, Jewish suffering and persecution that took place over the centuries in Christian lands um, and very often the uh, original idea and ideal as to why it was that they actually began the anti-Semitism or the um, um, <coughs> the blood libel in the first place um, was actually lost somewhere in the wash and it just became, well, we hate the Jews and there doesn't really have to be a reason why one of the foundations of, se- of anti-Semitism, of course, being this blood libel and uh, the Christians who pursued it with a, uh, a hatred, a venom, and uh, some kind of a, a real, real um, uh, negative drive to try and kill off, get rid of, and obliterate the Jewish communities. Now, the story of uh, Blois was that over 30 Jews, in fact, some recorded as being 31, and others, for some reason, say it was actually 40, um, men and women, were um, actually burnt in a place in this place called Blois, and the story was recorded by uh, two different people: Rabbi Ephraim of Bonn, a great Talmudic scholar, um, who lived at that time, <coughs> and he recorded it as did Rabbi Yosef Hakoyen, who recorded the events um, of um, the period of the Crusades. Um, which actually began in the year 4856 of the Jewish calendar or in 1096. And he records it in the uh, book called The Vale of Tears, The Valley of Tears, um, which is written by Rabbi Yosef HaKoyen. But let's take a look a little bit at what it was that Rabbi Ephraim of Bonn actually wrote about these tragedies. He said that it happened in the year 1171, which is 4931 of uh, the Jewish calendar. And it says at that time there lived in Blois about 40 Jews. One of them, Isaac ben Elazar, or ben Eliezer, rode up the river one Thursday towards evening, shortly before Pesach. Um, now, here is where Rabbi Yosef Hakoyen records the story a little bit differently. 
because Rabbi Yosef HaKohen says that um, this man went to the water and he found a Gentile there. Now, remember that the city was on the river. So he went to the river and he found a Gentile there. And the Gentile became shocked because the Gentile was um, busy trying to sub- submerse, trying to drown um, and get rid of a child a Christian, a little child, um, either a child that uh, whose body he was trying to dispose of um, or whatever. and um, But uh, Rabbi Ephraim of Bond does not record that. He says that it happened that a stable servant rode up at the same time to water the horse of his master. Now, the Jew had on his chest an untanned hide, but one of the corners had become loose and was sticking out of his coat. He said, when in the gloom, the servant's horse saw the white hide, side of the hide it was frightened and sprang back and it could not be brought to the water so what happened was whether it's version one or version two uh, the christian servant was a simple peasant had often heard the priest preach in church that jews used christian blood for their passover matzahs and wine warning all his flock to keep a watchful eye over their children during the pesach season so when the horse took fright he hastened back to his master and he said here my lord what a certain jew did As I rode behind him towards the river in order to give your horse a drink, I saw him throw a little Christian child whom the Jews have killed into the water. When I saw this, I was horrified and hastened back quickly for fear he might kill me too. Even the horse under me was so frightened by the splash of the water when he threw the child in it that he would not drink. The servant knew that his master would rejoice at the misfortune of the Jews because he hated a certain Jewess influential in the city. He was not mistaken because his master said, now I can have my vengeance on that woman and on the rest of the Jews. So the next morning, the master rode to the ruler of the city, who was known as Theobald, the son of Theobald, Count of Blois, the son-in-law of King Louis VII of France. And the Christians actually called him the good, says Rabbi Bon, but he was, in fact, a wicked, cruel man. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. So we've been discussing this date, the 20th of Sivan, Chav Sivan in Jewish history. And if we go back to the year 1171, we see a terrible story unfolding there. Of course, the servant, having witnessed what he saw uh, or thought he saw or made up what he saw at the riverside in the town of Blois in France, ran back to tell his master who had a gripe with a certain woman um, and uh, he went off to Theobald, the ruler, and told him what his servant had told him. When the ruler heard the accusation, he became enraged and he had all the Jews of Blois seized and thrown into prison where they were put into iron chains. The only exception was that influential Jewish woman whose name was Dame Pulcellina, whom the Count admired for her wisdom and beauty. She had often been able to get favors from the ruler for the Jewish merchants of Blois, but now the Count's wife, whose name was Alex, daughter of the king, gave strict orders to the servants not to allow her to speak to her husband for fear that she might get him to change his mind. The ruler had no evidence against the Jews except for that simple, stable servant, and the Count was ready to make a deal with the Jews and free them for a large sum of ransom money. He sent a Jew to the neighboring communities and asked them how much they would give to free their brethren. The Jews consulted with the imprisoned hostages, and the latter advised, 
offering only 100 pounds in addition to their uncollected debts from Christian debtors amounting to the sum of 180 pounds. The Jews in the dungeon told their brethren in the other communities not to pay a high ransom for their lives because that would just encourage the Christians to um, turn this into a profitable business, imprisoning Jews for ransom. However, nothing came of those negotiations because promptly the bishop arrived. And, of course, the notorious bishops arrived on the scene and insisted that the Jews should be condemned to die and that he would prove their guilt. Now, it's a fascinating thing that the uh, account of it, um, of what the priest then did, um, it was uh, something that literally comes out of a book of fairy tales. But this is what happened. It says, the priest told the count to have the witness tested by the ordeal of water. Um, have this stable boy who had s- supposedly uh, reported on what he had seen of a child being drowned in the river to have him tested by an ordeal of water to discover if he had in fact told the truth. And the test was to be arranged as follows. A huge tank would be filled with water and the servant who saw or purportedly saw a Jew throw the child into the river would be put into the tank. If he floated, his words were true. And if he sank, he had lied. Now, the Count um, of Blois commanded that the test should be carried out immediately. And the priest, in turn, had arranged in advance that the servant should not sink in such water. He had engineered, come up with a plan in order to make sure that the servant would not sink. Such was justice, unfortunately, in those days. And therefore, on the basis of this water test, the Jews were found guilty and condemned to be burned alive. Now, at the wicked ruler's command, they were taken and put into a wooden house around which were placed thorn bushes. And they were led forth, as they were led forth, rather, they were told, you can save your lives if you leave your religion and accept ours. The Jews refused. They were beaten and tortured to try and make them accept the Christian religion, but still they refused. Rather, they encouraged each other to remain steadfast and die, Al-Kiddush Hashem, die for the sanctification of God's name. At the Count's command, two of the leading Jews, both of whom were Kohanim, Rabbi Yechiel, the son of Rabbi David Hakoin, and Rabbi Yekutiel, the son of Rabbi Yehuda Hakoin, were taken and they were tied to a single stake to be burned in front of the others so as to try and make the others convert. They were both very saintly and pious men of great Torah learning, and being the disciples of Rabbi Yaak, Rabbeinu Yaakov Tam, Rabbeinu Tam, and Rabbeinu Shmuel ben Meir, the grandson of Rashi. A third prominent Jew, whose name was Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Aaron, was also tied with them to the stake. And at the ruler's command, fire was set to those stakes, um, to the branches that were placed around them. The fire promptly spread to the cords on their hands so that those cords snapped. The three Jews came out of the fire and called out to the Christians who had assembled to watch them die, By your own laws... You should let us go free, they said, for you see that we came out alive from the ordeal by fire. They struggled to get out, but they were overpowered and pushed back into the house, and the house was then set on fire. 
He reports that they came out again and seized one of the executioners and dragged him along with them towards the fire. And when they were at, right at the fire, the armed soldiers pulled themselves together, rescued the Christian from their hand, killed them with their swords, and then threw their bodies into the fire. There was a certain Jew by the name of Rabbi Baruch ben David Hakoyen who was there, and he saw all of this at that time with his own eyes. He lived in the territory of that ruler and had come there to arrange terms for the release of the Jews of Blois, but unfortunately he did not succeed. However, a settlement was made by him for 1,000 pounds to save the other Jews of that accursed ruler. He also managed to save the Torah scrolls and the other sacred books. This terrible atrocity happened, believe it or not, on a Wednesday, the 20th of Sivan, in the year 4931. It happened to be then, May the 26th, in 1171. And all these facts were written down by the Jews of Orleans, the city close by to that of the martyrs, and were made known to Rabbi Yaakov ben Reb Meir, Rashi's grandson, and the greatest rabbi of his time. It was also reported in that letter that as the flames mounted high, the martyrs began to sing in unison a melody that began softly but ended with a full voice. The Christians came and asked us, what kind of song is this? For we have never heard such a sweet melody. We knew it well, for it was the hymn, the song, Aleinu. Aleinu l'shabeach l'adon hakol. It's our duty to praise the Lord of all, for he has not made us like the nations of the lands. Shalom asanu ratzot. And we all know that prayer that we say three times a day at the end of Shachrit, at the end of Mincha, at the end of Mairiv. Aleinu l'shabeach. It's our duty to praise. God has not made us like the nations of the land. Rabbi Ephraim of Bonn records the amazing facts, as witnessed by the said Rabbi Baruch, that the bodies of the martyrs, in fact, were not consumed by fire. Only their souls were released. When the crowd saw it, they were amazed, and they said to one another, these truly must be saints. And for a long time, the 31, 32, or as we said, some say 40 martyrs of Blois, were not allowed to be buried. They were left at the bottom of the hill in the very spot where they were burnt, in that house, and it was only later that the Jews came and did a burial and buried their bones. Rabbi Ephraim adds the anguished lament. He says, O daughters of Israel, weep for the souls that were burnt for the sanctification of the name, and let your brothers, the entire house of Israel, bewail the burning. All the communities of France, England, and the Rhineland took upon themselves to observe then the 20th of Sivan, Chav Sivan, today, as a day of mourning and fasting. They were also confirmed by Rabbeinu Yaakov ben Meir, who wrote letters to them, informing them that it was proper to fix that day as a 24-hour fast day. Rabbeinu Yaakov Tam died in the third week after this Kiddush Hashem, as it was known, in the town, in the city of Blois. Now, it is an amazing fact of Jewish life. We know that uh, this week we read in the parsha the story about the spies that were sent by Moshe Rabbeinu, by Moses, to go and to check out the land of Israel. And we see something amazing there, and that is that the spies return, they come back, we're told, on the eighth day in the month of Av. 
that that is the day on which they return and they come back from checking out the land. And of course, we know the history of it all, that there were 12 spies, 10 of them, a whole community, we're told, comes back with a bad report and only two, only Kolev and Yoshua, Joshua and Kalev are the only ones who actually say this is a conquerable land. God has told us to go forth and to conquer it, and we're going to be successful. We're going to be able to do it. But the other ten, the majority, um, speak bedibataritz. They speak negatively about the land. They talk about how it is an eretz or chelet yoshvea. It is a land that eats its inhabitants. We're going to be crushed there. We're going to be like grasshoppers in the eyes of the giants. All sorts of negative reports that they bring back. But they come back um, really powerfully, predominantly, effectively on the eighth day in the month of Menachem Av, in the month of Av. And the people sitting around waiting for their return with bated breath to know about their advent to the land of Israel are absolutely and totally disappointed, deflated, and in fact driven to tears. And they spend the night following the eighth of Av crying. They cry for the fact that God has led us up the garden path. He's taken us out of Egypt and brought us close to Israel, and it's going to be a land that will actually destroy us. The promise is an empty promise. The result is going to be disastrous, and it would be better for us to stay in the desert or perhaps even to return to Egypt. And the spies, of course, have the terrible, terrible um, uh, space in Jewish history of having destroyed the hopes and the aspirations of the entire Jewish nation and of having spoken negatively of Israel. But prophetically, amazingly, the night that the Jewish people cried is the night of Tisha B'Av, the night of the ninth of Av. And that day then becomes cast in Jewish history as a day of sadness, as a day of destruction, as a day of mourning, as a day on which we understand and believe that everybody who needed to die in the desert during those 40 years that the Jews wandered in the desert actually perished on Tisha B'Av. That was the day on which they died. And then, later on in Jewish history, the day comes back to haunt us again. It is the day on which the first temple is destroyed. It's the day on which the second temple is destroyed. It's the day on which calamity after calamity in the Jewish uh, persona and history um, continues to take place. And unfortunately, it goes down in history as this negative, sad, and unpleasant date in this unpleasant period. And when Jews all over the world think of Tisha B'Av, it brings tears to our eyes, just the thought of that awful and terrible and horrible day. Well, Chaf Sivan had the um, terrible, a terrible um, event that happened on it, but you might say, well, pales in, in comparison to other calamities that happened. It was only 30 or 31 Jews and only um, perhaps a majority of 40, and it was one small town in a, a little city, a little town in uh, France that this all transpired. You know, really, what is the big deal? Well, our sages maybe saw something within it that we hadn't seen, and that was that the date now became seeped with the blood of Jewish people. It became a day on which they had seen this incredible and awful um, event that occurred in Blois. But in fact, it came back to haunt us later on as well. So we fast forward to the year 1650, which is 5410 
in uh, Jewish history. 1650, yeah, going back just those um, 400 or under 400 years to um, the year 1650. And uh, we meet up with a terrible character by the name of Chmelniki or perhaps Chmelnitsky, as he's sometimes called, who happened to be a big shot, a uh, ruler of sorts um, in the Ukraine. Um, and in fact, it was in the years 5408 to 5410, so from 1648 to 1650, that this tyrant, Chmelniki, passed with his armies through the Ukraine, Podolia and Volinia, and he destroyed hundreds of Jewish communities entirely and shed the blood of many tens of thousands of Jews without mercy. And in the country of Poland, where at the time, which at the time was a major power, there was a supreme council whom the Polish government vested with final authority over the Jewish communities. And the council was called the Council of the Four Lands, according to the names of the four provinces of which Poland was then comprised. Poland consisted of Great Poland, Small Poland, Lithuania, and White Russia. And the council existed and functioned for approximately 200 years until 1764. It met regularly at the great fairs in the cities of Lublin and Yaroslav and consisted of the greatest rabbonim and lay leaders at the time. After the years of annihilation in 1648 to 1649, at the time of the fair held in Lublin, during the year 1650, the council convened and reconfirmed the fast day of the 20th of Sivan as a day of mourning for the destroyed communities and for the death of the martyrs, Rabbi Yechiel Michal of Nemirov and Rabbi Shimshon of Ostropolia, who were slain on the 20th of Sivan. Now, the chronicler of that day, Rabbi Nosson Nota Hanava, recounts the enactment of the council in his work called Yevon Metzula. And he says, it was agreed among them, the council, and they accepted it upon themselves and their children after them to fast in all the four provinces on the 20th day of the month of Sivan every year, a day on which the calamities of the great and holy community of Nemirov began a day which has repeatedly been a tragic one since the evil decree of the year 1171. Remember, the story of Blois in France also occurred on that day. And they said, every male above the age of 18 and every female above the age of 15 are obligated to fast the entire day, as in the case of a public fast day. And the reading of Vayachal during Shachris and Mincha is likewise obligatory, and in the case of a public fast day. The other Jewish communities in other countries also willingly accepted the day as a day of mourning and fasting, even though the enactment of the council was not really binding upon them. The council of that part of Lithuania, which was not under the rule of Poland, also proclaimed a three-year period of restraint from wearing finery or rich clothing. Throughout their communities, they proclaimed it is proper for anyone who fears God to reflect on and to mourn over the terrible tribulations which have passed over us. There shall not be heard in the house of Israel any musical instruments, even at weddings, for a whole year. The Gaon, Rabbi Shabtai Kohen, 
who was the author of the Shach, Sifsei Kohen, um, a, one of the foremost commentators and uh, decipherers of the Shulchan Aruch. He also lived outside the domain of the Council of the Four Lands. He wrote the following. He said, I therefore establish for myself and my generations, for my sons and grandsons, a day of fasting, mourning, and lamentation on the 20th of Sivan, the month during which the Torah that is more precious than jewels was given, and the same Torah was torn to shreds by multitudes of Gentiles. For this day was the day on which evil decrees and ter- terrible anguish began. On it there also occurred repeated calamities. For the evil decree of 1171 also occurred on that day. And I've composed penitential prayers and lamentations to be said this day each year. And the Taz, who is uh, also one of the foremost commentators on the Shulchan Aruch writes in Orachayim, he says, It is customary to fast on the 20th of Sivan throughout the country of Poland, each community according to its custom. So it seems that this was primarily adopted in those regions. It is not something that um, everybody has kept up with and does here today. But, of course, the day emblazoned with those terrible tragedies. Um, we will take a short break, and I'll be back with you right after this. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. So we have this information about the city of Blois, about the um, terrible massacre of Jews there for a concocted story of a blood libel. Um, and we have the story about the Chmelniki pogroms, otherwise known as the pogroms of Tach Vetat, um, those uh, terrible, awful days um, when Chmelniki and his men used every excuse in the book, the Cossacks, to just obliterate thousands upon thousands of Jews um, in Poland and uh, the surrounding areas. And we think about the fact that our sages saw fit to declare this day as a day of mourning, as a day of sadness, and a day of fasting. And while we may not all be observing the fast day or thinking about it in those terms, there surely is some kind of an obligation upon us to at least um, think about what we as Jews today can and should do to react to uh, those occurrences of old. And there are a number of thoughts that certainly cross my mind. Number one is the fact that the fickleness of the society that we live in, of the world that we live in, is that uh, we should never discount the problems and the issues and the possibility that these things can and could happen again. Um, And we see that they did. And while we might have thought that that was relegated a few hundred years ago to the past, look at what happened not that long afterwards in the Holocaust. It just came back um, in a much more fiery, much more aggressive, much more terrible way. So number one is never discount that kind of a possibility. Number two is that we need to be buoyed and bolstered by the attitude of our sages of those days. Look at the behavior of those rabbis um, and those people. Probably several of them very, very simple folk who rather went to their deaths, were rather burnt in that house in Blois um, all those hundreds of years ago, uh, rather than to give up their faith, their commitment, and their absolute dedication, their mesirat nefesh within themselves to stand up for their Judaism and to not convert, not change their belief in God and their belief in the Torah and so on, was absolutely steadfast. It's an incredibly encouraging and very, very proud kind of an image that we can live with. 
But uh, what of the fact that our sages declared it some kind of a fast and uh, wanted us to remember it in this way? Well, ultimately, it's in order to promote, as all fasts do, and the commonality between them all, is uh, to encourage teshuva, to make sure that people realize uh, the power of Torah, the power of our mitzvot, and the power of um, having to return and having to be as steadfast as they were then um, to our Yiddishkeit, to our Judaism, and rather than lose faith and rather than lose hope, but be bolstered by the fact that ultimately if we do what we need to do, we can certainly swing the balance, change this world, make it a far more pleasant, a much better place, and stamp out the scourges of hatred, of evil, of difficulties, of all sorts of problems and issues that confront our people everywhere and at all times and get rid of it for once and for all um, through swinging the balance and making this world a far, far better place. So surely our job on a day like today is um, to add to our Torah and our mitzvot to do a little bit more, to increase in our uh, acts of kindness, to increase in our acts of goodness, to increase in our mitzvot, to make sure that if we're doing a mitzvah that we do it just a little bit better, to make sure that our connection to Hashem, our connection to each other, and our connection to our Judaism is uh, just that little bit stronger. Because um, right now we are, as was mentioned before, in the month in which the Torah was given to us. And remember that it didn't take that long before uh, the Jewish people had already given up their hope once the Torah had been given. They'd seen all the wonders and miracles. And we have seen so much and so many um, events that are inexplicable and miraculous and unbelievable. Um, not only, of course, in our holy land in Israel, but even here in this country, um, the most unbelievable, wonderful things. Of course, people like too often to dwell on the negative, but we've seen the most incredible, incredible, wonderful things that have happened. Some things inexplicable, some things that can only be described as being miraculous. And as we look at that, we need to remember to recommit, to recommit to our Judaism, to recommit to our Torah, to recommit to our mitzvot, and to realize that we, as partners with God in the creation of the world, can help to create a more peaceful, a more loving, a more caring, a nicer, a kinder kind of a world. And what better day to think about that and to try and integrate and inculcate and do something about it than today, Chaf Sivan, the day on which these calamities happened that um, we cannot allow to define us, but rather to define our stature and the way we picked ourselves up, dusted ourselves off, and moved forward in building the great and wonderful Jewish people that we are. We'll be back with you right after this. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. So as we come towards the end of our slot here of Judaism 101.9, um, of course, we've been speaking about Chaf um, Sivan, but linked as it is, as we mentioned before, with the Parsha of the week, the portion that we read this week, all about the spies, the spies that went to Israel. And uh, perhaps the greatest lesson about the spies is how things can be viewed not only by different news stations, but by different people and different great people. 
um, in a completely, a totally, and absolutely different light. How things can be misconstrued, how things can be misinterpreted, how things can be twisted in order to suit your own ends and in order to suit what you consider sometimes to be a higher ideal. Because what was it that the spies actually saw when they went into Israel? Well, they saw a land not necessarily that was going to eat up and kill its inhabitants, but rather a land that was going to make us have to work hard, a land in which all of a sudden the people were not going to be able to learn as much Torah as they had in the desert or as they had the potential to do in the desert, a land in which they were now going to have to earn a living. They were now going to have to work hard till the soil um, plant, grow, um, nourish, and uh, prosper in a physical sense. And the spies perhaps were, were, were worried and concerned about the fact that the people may go astray. They may, may become too materialistic. They may become too external. They may be a little bit um, outward-looking rather than inward and rather than perfecting themselves. And this bothered them. It worried them. It troubled them. And God said, hey, one second, this is not the uh, process. This is not the way, and this is not what's meant to be. We are not meant to be uh, the people who um, are sitting in the desert 24 hours a day and learning Torah. We're meant to take the Torah, integrate it into the world, make the world a better place, uplift, change, dominate this world, and make it into everything that we know that it should be to encourage the performance of mitzvot, which are physical actions, physical deeds, things that um, can, one by one, actually plant the seeds and uh, swing the pendulum and make the weight of goodness rather dominate evil, negativity, and all the bad stuff that we perceive, that we see, that goes on on a regular basis. So there are always two ways to look at everything. You could look at the positive or you could look at the negative. Let's not be like the spies who twisted what they should have seen as positive into something negative in order to fulfill their own perception of what things should be and how everything should have turned out. And let's rather spend our time thinking about what it is that the Torah, what God actually, truly, and really wants from us. And ultimately, as we work together to do our mitzvot, to study our Torah, to recommit um, on this day, on this Chafsivan, to the, that kind of a program and that kind of a world, we know that we can and we will change this place. We will make it a better place and we'll bring ultimately the coming of Mashiach that we hope and pray for each and every day. So I want to end by wishing you, as I always do, a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead. And look forward to being back with you again. Same time, same place next week on uh, Wednesday at just gone, just after 2 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon with Judaism 101.9.